it's about. And Nancy, one more time, carried the message home to me, you know. And uh, and I started doing the work I had to do in AA. And uh, Bob and I have a friend in common, guy uh, a guy named Cliff Roach, who I uh, love and adore, and and uh, uh, who has been an incredible example to me uh, of how to live with active alcoholism and how to deal with your kids. At one point, I had been discussing this stuff with him for a couple of months. Cliff, I don't know if you've ever seen Cliff talk. He kind of looks like a trained at, uh, attack Muppet. And uh, um, he got right up in my face and went, You're powerless! You're powerless! You're powerless! You're powerless! You're powerless! <laughs> so I called him the next day and I said, Stop me if I'm wrong. Were you implying that I'm powerless? <laughs> He's a great guy. I love him. And uh, uh, what started happening was, uh, I know that I can't make my kid not a drunk if he's a drunk, but I can act like his father. We got him into a, uh, an outpatient program, and he had random drug testing, and, and I told him if he tested dirty, he'd go to a residential treatment program, and I acted like a responsible, loving father. I got the testing out of the house, so I didn't have to sniff anybody or look through anybody's drawers, and I just let my kid know that I adored him. I adore this boy. We went to the new school, you know, health school. Now he's in health school. He's been in the special school. Now we go to the school. It's like a bad Adam 12 episode. We pull up to the school and, and gang members are being tossed by the cops in front of the school. It was like a poorly directed TV show, you know. And we go in and we get to the dean. And they were at the dean. And my kid's the kind of kid they don't want. He's a drug dealer, right? The dean looks at this stuff and he looks at me and he says, what do you think your son? I said, I think my son is a very handsome, very talented, very smart young man who is answering a call beyond his control. And he said to Micah, what do you think of your parents? And, and Micah said, all I can tell you is I am really glad my father's with me right now. And the dean looked at us as if to say, what, what planet are you from? You know, what, what, the, what the hell is this? Well, I know exactly what it is. It's a demonstration of the power of God in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and Mike's, uh, Mike's doing great now. You know, he's, he's in another special school and, and, uh, and he's doing great. Uh, but uh, we started doing great long before he started doing great again. You know, last Christmas, uh, on Christmas Day, uh, we woke up and Mike uh, didn't show up. Uh, you know, the presence are there, and he didn't show up. And, and I'm starting to get pissed off, you know. Not for me. Uh, for my wife, you know. She had, <laughs> she had gone through a lot of trouble, and uh, it's getting a little later, and I'm starting to get more pissed off, but not for me, uh, for my younger son, because this meant a lot to him. And it's about 11.30, and I know I'm going right into the crapper behind this. And I call my friend, who I adore, an Alcoholics Anonymous, and I told him what was going on. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I know where he is. I want to go pick him up, and I want to beat the crap out of him. And he said to me on the phone, you can go do that, but let me just tell you something before you go. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my 40-year-old son was at my house, and he had a little tick in his eye. And I asked him where he got the tick from, and he said to me that he had been to a neurologist, and the neurologist told him that the only way he could have gotten a tick was from a blow to the head. And my friend said to me on the phone, I know that I'm the only person who's ever hit him in the head. And my violence completely evaporated why would a man tell another man such a thing out there in that world if a man admitted a mistake like that to another man why that man could might even take advantage of it you could take a mistake in another man and maybe stand on the shoulders of that mistake and make yourself a little bigger why would a man ever tell a man such a thing because it's his job because once the dark past, his dark past has been put into God's hands, he can help others avert death and misery. He was perfectly there for me that morning. 
I mean exactly what I needed to hear, exactly in the way that I needed to hear it. And I said, what should I do? And he said, get off the phone, take the third step using your son's name, and go in and ask your family what they want to do. And I followed his direction. I took the third step using Micah's name. I went inside and I said to Jesse and, and Nancy, what do you want to do? And they said, you know, we're kind of sad and we're kind of angry, but let's have us a morning. And we had a great Christmas. Micah showed up, you know, on Martian time later on, you know, but... Uh, 35, 40 members of Alcoholics Anonymous now and on marched in and out of our house that day. We're right in the pocket. Right in the pocket. If you're new here, I don't know what you're coming in with. I, I don't know what your deal is. I don't know uh, if you have the defective character of murder on your, or your inventory. I sponsor a man who had a, uh, drank a couple of beers, got into his car, ran over a nine-year-old kid and killed him. And the guy couldn't get sober. He didn't get it. He didn't get it. He didn't get that if he stayed here, he can look into the eyes of a man who has killed a child and say to him, this is for you too. He can help a man who has killed a child in a way that I can't help him. I'm not saying I can't help him, but not like that. Not like that. His wife had become so sick from alcoholism that when they had a civil suit, you know, quite often when you kill somebody, they take a civil judgment. They had a million-dollar civil judgment against him. He's a laborer. He ain't never going to make a million dollars. And his wife's only reaction was, why play the lottery? If we win, we'll just have to give it to them. That's how sick the ice can get around our hearts, man. And they say for each one of us, we take seven people down with us. We don't die in Skid Row. Only 3% of us do. The rest of us get people to shoot us. <laughs> we piss them off so bad, they take us out and bust a cap into our ass. Or we die from reactions to drugs. Or we drown in our own vomit. Or we die in car crashes. We don't die. 3% of us die in Skid Row. You know? And um, I don't know what you're coming in here. I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to, I want to strongly urge you to stick around long enough to get a diagnosis. You know, uh, since my cooking days, I have wound up under contract to Universal Studios, directing television shows. I've written movies for the biggest uh, producers in Hollywood. And two months ago, I wound up back in, uh, cooking in a Mexican restaurant. And then two weeks ago, I was working on television pilots. And last week, I went back into the Mexican restaurant. I'm a free man. I'm not telling you I don't prefer being at the studio. Sure, I prefer it. But I love to cook, too. I'm really, really proud of the life that I live. I'm really proud to be my son's father. You know? um, our problem mainly rests in our mind. If you're new here, um, I just want to tell you, and this is just my opinion, I think you're in a very dangerous situation. If you're new here, I think you're in an extremely precarious and dangerous situation. You cannot get sober unless you have a spiritual experience. We know you have not had one yet. Don't drink. Don't drink. The weirdest thing anybody has ever told me in my life. When you want to drink, don't. Don't drink. The not drinking part is a moose. If it wasn't for the not drinking part, we'd be a much larger organization. <laughs> There is, there is no question about it. Our ranks would swell if it was not for this goddamn not drinking thing. You know, our problem mainly rests in our mind. Why would we go back to the drink despite the attendant misery and suffering and begin this horrifying cycle of spree, remorse, spree, remorse? If our problem did not mainly rest in our mind. Um, some time ago, I was on the 
phone with a guy. I met him in a meeting. And he was a couple of weeks sober, and he called me up and he talked to me for an hour. Uh, and I, I said, uh huh, four times, so he'd know I hadn't defibrillated. And uh, uh, and in that hour, he described to me that he had been stalking several women. He had a restraining order taken out against him, but it's all different now. He's two weeks sober, and it's all different. And then at the end of the hour, he said to me, "I feel so all alone." And I said. I hardly know you, and I just listened to you for an hour without interrupting. What do you mean you feel alone? He said, I mean, I don't have a woman. And I said to him, well, what exactly would you be bringing to a relationship right now? <laughs> besides stalking skills. <laughs> what are you bringing to the party, pal? What a catch, huh? People two weeks into remission from leukemia are not having dating problems. They're just not having them. They're concerned that their hair grow back. They are not having dating problems. And if they are having dating problems, they're little itty-bitty dating problems. The only people I know suffering from a fatal illness having dating problems that they can drink over are alcoholics. I don't know. Um, a couple of years ago, my, my wife was, uh, she was walking through our bedroom, and she, I was talking to a new guy, and all she heard me say on the phone was, Let's say the aliens are coming. <laughs> well, she stopped short. She ain't missing this for nothing. I said, the aliens are coming. I don't, that's an outside interest. I have no opinion on it. I just have one question for you. Why are they coming for you? Why have they traversed an entire galaxy for your sorry ass? You're 11 days sober. You have no life. Why have they come across a universe for you? Plus, he's sleeping with the Bible on his chest to ward them off. They're going to come across billions of miles, walk into his room and go, Oh no, the Bible, let's go home. <laughs> our problem mainly rests in our mind. Sometimes new guys uh, have said to me, Drinking is the furthest thing from my mind. To which I usually reply, No, your mind is the furthest thing from your mind. Let me just tell you why I'm not impressed, if you're new. And uh, this is not a knock at you, and I, I, my aim here is not to make fun of you, but I want to impress upon some, on you something that was very important for me to understand. The entire big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, as far as I understand it, is engineered to try to communicate to us that when we drink, it will be the furthest thing from our mind. It doesn't say you'll start thinking of a drink. You'll see it. It'll be a little tiny drink over in the distance. You'll think about it a little bit. The next day, you'll think about it a little more. It'll be a little bigger. Then the next day, incoming, incoming, it'll be a little bigger. And you'll think about it a little more. And then, no, it says, boom, you're drunk. It says, boom, you put whiskey in your milk. Boom, you cross the threshold of the hotel and you say to yourself, a couple of cocktails would just go swell with dinner. What do you think? <laughs> it says all through it that you will be, that if you are alcoholic, you are now in the clutches of something so cunning, baffling, and powerful that you will drink when drinking is the furthest thing from your mind. So I'm glad that you're not being bothered by it, but I just want to tell you why we're not impressed with that and why we say keep coming back. Don't drink no matter what. Don't drink no matter what. You see, every craving has a beginning, a middle, and an end. An obsession doesn't. And you can make a deal with God. If you're new here, you can make a deal with God this weekend. You can say to God, Father, I will stop treating my alcoholism. When a craving comes up, I have been treating that craving with a drink, and I want to make a deal with you. I'll stop treating it. Will you treat it? I'll stop treating the craving. Will you treat the obsession? Every craving has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, man, when you have them and they break over you like a wave, 
when you first stopped drinking and you felt that your whole body lit up and it crashed over you like a wave, man. And what you have to do is you have to stand and take the whooping. It's the hardest goddamn thing I ever did in my life. And I've gotten the biggest prize from it that I've ever gotten from any goddamn thing I've ever done in my whole life. But if I make that deal with God, if I say, I will stop treating my craving, I will accept my craving and experience the craving, beginning, middle, and end, Father, please remove the obsession. And it says in step 10, the alcohol problem will be removed. It says at the end of Dr. Bob's nightmare that for the first two and a half years of his sobriety, he had still had the obsession, but he had so frightfully abused his right to drink, he had lost it. And he left, left us, of course, an incredible legacy of service, which tells us how he stayed away from it. So, uh, again, I'm, I'm incredibly... Uh, grateful to uh, to be able to share with you guys and be in this this beautiful place. And uh, it says in, in the literature that I read that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is about learning how to live uh, joyfully and joyously uh, with the 12 steps, the 12 concepts, the 12 traditions, and the 12 principles. And uh, I'm just real grateful to be here. And, and tomorrow, perhaps, we can start a, a somewhat useful, hopefully illuminating discussion of the steps. And that's all for tonight. Thanks, guys. My name is Scott Redmond. I'm an alcoholic. Let's start off this morning with a serenity prayer, please. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Again, I'd like to welcome everybody and, and uh, thank Bob for asking me to come and talk. And uh, we're going to have three sessions and hopefully be able to uh, cover the 12 steps. Uh, and um, I'm going to be talking about the steps in kind of groups of four, and we'll probably slop over to each other, and I want to end each session with a question and answer period so that we can open up and get some feedback from the guys and, and uh, maybe uh, examine a few things a little more closely if guys want to pounce on some points that come up. I want to uh, um, say in advance that the stuff I'm going to be talking about uh, in, in these sessions is, is my stuff. This is how I've come and found a power greater than myself that has restored me to sanity, that has uh, helped me get a grip on sobriety. And I want to urge you, I just want to tell you that anything I share is, is, is my story and not an indictment of your program. If I talk about that I couldn't do a step this way, that I had to do a step that way, we were online for breakfast this morning and we were talking about with another guy how uh, two people can uh, reach the same spiritual goal using only almost completely different paths to the same goal. You know, I've approached the inventory process the way I've been taught to, uh, to approach it, and, and it, it works for me and it doesn't work for some other guys. It's like the lady in Vancouver who had a few lessons to learn from God, and uh, I, don't, I don't have a God up there that's, uh, that's uh, uh, saying, well, let's keep Saturn on its axis. And, and get the Redmond kid, you know, and, and, and screw him up because I think he needs to jump a few hurdles. Um, uh, what I'd like to do on the way through is uh, maybe we could take some steps together today. So I want to start out with a, um, a uh, discussion of step one. And if we, uh, for those who would care to take step one this morning, just out loud together, if we could say, I'm powerless over alcohol, my life has become unmanageable, maybe some of us could take that step together and then discuss it. So whenever you're ready, guys, I am powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. Whew. 
Um, some people uh, surrender like Custer. You know, I surrendered like Custer. Uh, uh, <laughs> all my men were dead. <laughs> I was surrounded. Uh, my horse got shot in the head. He went down. I was out of bullets, and there were five arrows headed for me, and I said, I give up. And um, what does it take for an alcoholic to surrender? Uh, I don't know. I don't know, uh, again, I don't know why I surrendered. I, I, I did t uh, mention to you last night that my, what I had made my God had abandoned me. And that was psychotherapy. And psychotherapy had become my God, and it had abandoned me. Um, but when a guy surrenders in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you can tell the guys who have surrendered completely, you can tell the guys who have surrendered conditionally, and you can tell the guys who have not surrendered at all. If I go to work step six and seven, I say, humbly ask God to remove these defects. All right? Humbly ask him to remove them. And it's so funny that the humility step seems to be in six and seven, and without humility we can't seem to get sober at all. And yet they hold off the big humility step until kind of smack in the middle of it. But unless an alcoholic on some level is willing to say, my plan has not worked out. Things do not seem to be going right. Unless they become willing on some kind of level to follow some other plan, uh, they, uh, we, we seem to be hopeless. And um, there's a, a guy in my old home group who used to tell one of my favorite stories about a, a newcomer who had surrendered, about what happens in a man when he really starts adhering to or trying to find the AA way of life. He told this story about this uh, old-timer got a 12-step call, and he grabs this newcomer, and they, they get into his car, and this guy's got a couple of months, you know, and they go down this, this road. It turns into a dirt road. They're out in the boonies. They reach this lean-to. doesn't even have a door on it. It's like a burlap sack, and they go in, and there's this drunk sitting on a stained mattress wearing dirty underwear, sucking on a bottle of wine. The only other thing in the lean-to is a, a candle flickering in a can, and this newcomer looks at this guy and says to him, look, I'm new, I don't know much about this deal, but I'll tell you one thing, man, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to lose all this. <laughs> it's all relative, you know, it's all, <laughs> it's, it's all relative, and um, uh, the, the gentleman who was kind enough to pick me up at the airport on the way up here, we were talking about, uh, about relative experience and how when we're drinking we have nothing to, to make I have no sober experience I mean I might have not drunk for a period of time you know so what but I have no sober experience I have no spiritually sober experience so what am I going to compare myself to am I going to say well this is bad this will be better well, I couldn't do that when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know what was better. It, it says in our book, there is a solution. You know, It says there is a solution. Almost none of us like the, the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, and the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummations. Now, these guys are so kind to us. Almost none of us like the, the self-searching. Almost none of us. I mean, they're so sweet and kind to us in, in these chapters. I've never met a guy who I've shown the work to who said, Wow, that really looks like fun. I can hardly wait to do this stuff. And a sexual inventory, too. Ooh, ooh. Um, almost none of us. I, I think it's pretty much, in my experience, has been none of us. Uh, uh, like the, the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation, and here's how it became relative. 
But we saw that it really worked in others and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us to pick up the kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. Spiritual tools, not spiritual weapons, spiritual tools laid at our feet. And so what it says to me clearly there is, all, I, all that is required of me that I be convinced on some kind of level that the Scott Redmond program is not working out. And uh, the only the demonstration of the power of God and the notion that something else can happen is going to be contained and embodied in the sober alcoholic that approaches me. That that's where I'm going to see it. And as slim as it was, as tiny as it was, I met guys in, when I came in here in whom my problem had been solved. I want to tell you, when, just for me, again, when I saw guys say, yeah, I loved dental surgery. When I, when I saw guys share in that kind of complete... I mean, I was never going to tell people this stuff. That bizarre thinking, that helped me stick around Alcoholics Anonymous for a period of time. I was sober a couple of weeks, and uh, I was coming to meetings, and I kept saying to myself, I haven't hurt my kids. You know, I've done a lot of bad stuff, but I haven't hurt my kids. They've hurt their kids. I haven't hurt my kids. And I was two weeks sober. I was on the phone with a guy, and I had a memory, and I, I, it just came and hit me and knocked me off my chair. And what the memory was was that several weeks before, I had been with my older son, who was seven at the time, and I was hungover, and I got sick in front of him, and he got sick in response to me getting sick. And what happened was I had a moment of clarity. I realized for the first time that the only reason my son had got sick was because he was with his father. If my son had not been with his father, he would not have gotten sick. It was crystal clear to me at that moment that my son hadn't eaten bad food. He did not have a virus. He was with his father. That I was clearly the reason why he had gotten sick. And it crushed me. And thank God it crushed me. And it crushed me enough to know that I could stick around here one more day at a time and listen to what you people had to say. Not because I liked you and not because I thought you were anything but monstrously lame because that's what I thought you were, but because the Scott Redmond program had clearly uh, uh, had not panned out. Um, deflation, surrender, and identification are, uh, are for me, uh, the linchpins of the first step. There are no, to the best of my knowledge, no written instructions on how to take the first two steps in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. There are clear-cut written instructions on how to take every other step. In chapter 5, uh, they can, it, it, uh, we, we're told how to take steps 3 and 4. In chapter 6, we're told how to take steps 5 through 11. And then, uh, I don't think for editorial reasons, I think because they, they really thought it was important, they actually saved an entire chapter for the 12th step. And um, to the best of my knowledge, <clears throat> on page 60, these first two steps are contained in these three pertinent ideas. It says, if you've, the, uh, our description of the alcoholic, if you've read chapter 3, if you've read chapter 4, the personal adventures before and after, it should make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. Now, again, to the be and then it says being convinced we were at step three. And when I first read this, I went, was I out of the room? How the hell did we get to step three? When the hell did this happen? Well, I think these guys, and this, again, just for me, because a lot of guys do a lot of writing on the first two steps, and I know it helps them. But, again, just for me, I think these guys knew that ultimately... Ultimately, not that it's not a good exercise, not that it's not helpful, but that ultimately I could write about steps one and two until my head fell off. If I did not have some notion that I was an alcoholic and that my life was unmanageable, if I did not have some intuitive notion, 
I was sucking eggs. I could write all day and all night. And again, I'm not putting the writing down at all. But I have to ask myself, why are there no written instructions in the big book on how to take those first two steps? I think these guys knew, and that used to, in the original <clears throat> draft, which if you want to take a look at, I know is on the table, I believe it used to say something like, if you don't think you're an alcoholic, throw this book away. Uh, and I think they realized there'd be books hitting garbage cans all over the world. <laughs> they took that phrase out of there pretty... I know, I would have... I would have really launched that sucker across the room. Um, uh, so uh, I am powerless over alcohol. My life uh, is unmanageable, and uh, it's, a, it's a pretty remarkable thing. Um, the level and the depth at which I had been able to take the first step when I first came in here as compared to now are vastly different. Um, it has been my experience, and I talked about it briefly last night, that if we don't continue to do the work that our first step will disappear. That's just been my experience, and I've seen it in hundreds of guys, that our bottom will cease to exist. It won't be a bottom anymore. It'll be a conspiracy, you know, another part of the conspiracy. It'll be a t period of time where people were thinking behind my back. It will cease to become my bottom. And it has been my experience that the, uh, the more work I've done in Alcoholics Anonymous, the worse my bottom gets. My bottom has gotten progressively worse over the years. This stuff that Nancy and I used to joke about, that ain't so funny anymore. That's really horrifying, you know. Um, I had a pretty good picker out there. I used to, uh, you know, be able to pick people who would uh, take a whooping, you know, pretty good. And I, I goofed up a couple of times, you know. And um, I got a job from a guy at the University of Michigan uh, teaching some workshops at this hospital, uh, in these theater workshops to this hospital. And... Uh, the money was late, and I asked him if I could borrow the money from him, and then when the university paid me the money, why, I just signed that check over to him. <laughs> and uh, this is a man who sold a car that a guy lent him. And uh, <laughs> um, I got his check, I got their check, I got everybody's check, and I was on a roll, you know. Well, this guy, I screwed up. I, I, I picked poorly. And what this guy did was he took the Xeroxes of both checks with my signature on them, he Xeroxed them up and wrote a letter telling people exactly what I had done, and he sent it to everyone he knew that I knew and every member of my wife and my family and ex-employers. Oh, and I was in my father-in-law's house when he got this letter. And I saw a little part of my father-in-law die that day because there was no explanation. There, was no, there wasn't even any discussion available. Uh, if that stuff continued to be this guy's fault because that's an I don't care okay I did a shitty thing but that was really rotten that was a really horrible thing to do to a guy and if I hadn't done my inventory it would have remained a really unusually harsh punishment for a, a mistake <laughs> um, then I know that my bottom starts to disappear if I continue to be able to blame those people for those misfortunes my bottom continues to evaporate um, if you guys would join me, uh, we can take, I'd like to just take the second step together. If you, when you're ready, if we could say, I, uh, I've come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. I have come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. It says, I have come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. That it was possible. Not that it was going to happen, that it could happen. Not that it should happen, and not that it would happen, but that it was possible for it to happen. If I am convinced, and again, until I took an inventory, how could I, and this is just for me, how could I truly admit my life was unmanageable? 
I'm resentful at them. I'm resentful at them for seeing me resent them. I've had sex with all of them. I'm scared of all of them. I resent my grandmother. I resent my mother. I resent my father. I resent Mrs. Slattery in the second grade. I resent the kid who bullied me. I resent the kid who allowed me to bully him. I'm scared of both of them. I wanted to have sex with Mrs. Slattery. Ah! <laughs> ah! It's like a grade B horror movie, man. And that's just the second grade. It just gets worse. It just gets bigger. <laughs> when I finally, finally took a look at this stuff and was, and then I was, a, then I was able to take step one. Then, you know, I'm resentful at myself for spending the rent money on hookers. I'm resentful at myself for spending the kids' clothing money on a limousine. Who wanted to admit any? Almost none of us. Wanted to admit to leveling a pride? Well, count me into almost none of us, pal. Uh, I, I did not, and in, in the description of step one, of the last page of step one, in the 12 and 12, Bill says beautifully, who would care to do the rest of this work without the admission of hopelessness? Without deflation, without surrender, without identification. Identification, meaning it's relative. I see that my problem has been resolved in others, and I'm going to move forward. You know? Um... But for me, again, I, the st step one has gotten continually bigger and bigger and bigger as a direct result of doing the rest of the steps. And I want to tell you, and I'm, I, I joke about it last night, but it's just true, newcomer plans have been a big help to me. When I hear the plans of the newcomer, I am able to take step one on a much deeper level. Because I have heard some ideas that are... Uh, Steven Spielberg's got nothing on us, pal. I mean, we, we can come up with some stuff. I, I, one of my favorites is newcomers who want to pull off one last dope deal so they can be well-situated financially for their sobriety. That's one of my... <laughs> Maybe a, ma a mule for a major drug cartel just to get it, by, you know, raise money to buy a big buck. Um... <laughs> A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. That's step one. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. No human power could have relieved our alcoholism. On page 24 in the chapter, there is a solution. It says, when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid. Always good news for the new man. <laughs> You're beyond human help. Very exciting. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's an incredible thing. Uh, there's a couple of lists in chapters 2 and 3. One is a list of things we say about to ourselves, and one is a list of things that, that people say about us. And right before the statement that I just read, it says, Alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. For God's sake, how did I ever get started again? Well, I'll stop after the sixth drink. Oh, that magical sixth drink. And then, then there's a, a, a list of things that people say about us. You know, uh, like... Uh, uh, I can drink like, why can't he drink like a gentleman or quit? I can take it or leave it. Why can't he? Why don't you try beer or wine? Lay off the hard stuff. He could stop if he wanted to. Why doesn't he stop for her sake? She's such a sweet girl. And there is a world of misunderstanding, not only on the part of the people who are saying these things about us, but the things we're saying about ourselves. The sixth drink. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was as ignorant of alcoholism as these other people around me were. Um, 
until, again, I met a man in whom my problem had been solved. So, if I am a person with alcoholic tendencies, and this thinking that I just described has become established in me, and I enumerated on other, you know, on more of the thinking last night when we talked about drinking at exactly the wrong time. And Dr. Silkworth talks about it so beautifully in the doctor's opinion when he talks about uh, the phenomenon of craving and drunks drinking to overcome a craving beyond their control. And he talks about guys who he, he knows who had, uh, had business things that were going to come out in their favor and they got drunk. They got drunk and blew the entire thing. And they didn't get drunk because they wanted to, he says. They got drunk to overcome a craving beyond their control. And once this thinking becomes established in somebody, uh, then we, we jump to, uh, to uh, chapter 4, to the agnostics. It says, this lack of power is your dilemma. If, you, if this thinking has become established in you, that's placed you beyond human help. If lack of power is your dilemma, and you have to find a power by which you could live, well, we got good news because that's exactly what this book is about. And then it goes on, uh, to me, to uh, the two... Um, paragraphs in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that, that made it possible for me to stay alive. It says, and boy did this save my bacon, it was impossible for any of us to fully comprehend or define that power which is God. Because I had, a, I had some pretty serious cases with God I needed to discuss. There were some pretty serious things wrong here. you know. And uh, it says, uh, uh, got me off the hook immediately. It says, you're not, uh, uh, not going to be able to define him or, or understand him. But if you now believe, and here's the hook, if you're even willing to believe. It doesn't say, if you believe or if you're willing to believe, sign a check. We're going to haze you. Uh, go, you know, give you a pink belly or any of that, that stuff. It says, we emphatically assure you you're on your way. You're on the bus. You're in. You're in. You're equal. There's no head drunk. You're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you can move forward with this thing. And then in the rest of the chapter, it does some stuff, which in order to take step two, because for me, if lack of power is my dilemma, if I must find a power by which I can live, if the spiritual experience is the only thing that is going to rip me out of this cycle of remorse, spree, remorse, and spree, if it's the only thing that's going to save me, and that is promised in the twelfth step, it says as a result of these steps, we had a spiritual experience. If that's true, then all step two for me is, is an admission of possibility. Is for me to say, just like it said, there is a solution. Almost none of us like the leveling of pride and the confession of shortcomings, but we saw that it worked in others, so we moved forward. And that's what step two is for me. It doesn't say that God should restore me to sanity. It doesn't say that he would. It says that it is possible. If I move over, if I move over in step three, let him take control of my life on some kind of primitive level at first, and it develops over a period of time, but it's an admission, it's saying, this will happen for me if I do the rest of this work and I have the spiritual experience promised in the 12th step. Um, I don't know why I was uh, willing uh, to allow that into my life. I really don't. And sometimes when guys come to me and, they got, and guys come to any number of the men in this room and say, and they do what, what Silkworth talks about, they say, why, what is wrong with me? Why can't I get sober? Why can't I, why can't I just stop? And, and I have to answer the same way Dr. Silkworth answers. He says something incredible in his, he says, you might think it's bizarre that I, why would I a doctor? I'm an administrator of a, you know, Town Hospital was one of the most prestigious hospitals dedicated to the treatment of drug addiction and alcoholism in the world, really. 
He says, why would I sponsor an altruistic spiritual society, in essence, that I'm not making dollar one from? Medicines and industry, we know that probably more acutely now than we ever have before. And he says, why would I do this? Why would I sponsor this program? And he says there, the same thing that I try to mimic him when I'm approached with this question. Come hang out with me. See the warped lives. See the destroyed families. See the destroyed children. See the warped lives of blameless children. Boy, that phrase is just pretty extraordinary. He says, let it become part of your waking moments. And then he says something that just kills me. He says, and also your sleeping moments. He was obviously dreaming about people he couldn't help. And you won't ask me why I'm doing this. You know, come join me on the firing line. And when a guy says to me, why can't I get this? I say, I don't know. I don't know. Why you? Why me and not you? I don't know. Maybe I was convinced on some kind of level. Maybe I was deflated enough and did the work quickly enough to increase that deflation and keep it going. Because it's a bizarre thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. You must admit you're different in order to admit that you're not different. You must say, I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows. I cannot drink safely in any proportion. And once you do that, then you must say, and I am like all of you other drunks, I am not special, I need this thing, I need to become part of this non-different, different society, you know, <laughs> because if I remain a crackhead, a dope fiend, a, a dope juggernaut, I ain't going to get it, man, I ain't going to get it. You know, and uh, uh, one of the you hear a lot of remarkably stupid things about alcoholism uh, uh, all over the place. My favorite remarkably stupid thing is when people outside of the program will say to people in the program, "Well, geez, don't you think that AA is just a crutch?" And I and I I always say, "Yeah, well, you know, I, it's like telling a diabetic, are you still leaning on that insulin?" <laughs> You know, boy, man, I got a lot more gumption than that. You know, I don't know. In that insulin. <laughs> and uh, other people who say to me, I don't want to be an AA robot. And, and what I think, I try to keep my mouth shut. Sometimes I succeed and sometimes I don't. Let AA robot be a lofty goal. You should be so lucky. Brainwashed? You should be so lucky. It probably could use a good scrubbing. <laughs> Man. There's an incredible thing, uh, a lot of in incredible stuff in our in our book and one of one of my favorites is uh is it, it says in the, in the description of uh of our inventory process it says, uh, it is plain that a life uh, which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness to the precise extent that we permit these to squander the hours that might have been worthwhile. Right? So for every 15, five minutes I spend in resentment, it's five minutes I'm burning. Right? It's five minutes I'm cutting myself off from the sunlight of the Spirit that I could be with God. And it's five minutes I could be doing something else. Fishing, thinking, making love, doing anything else. So for every five minutes I spend in resentment, I'm, I'm kind of flushing 15 minutes down the toilet. Right? And on page 88, at the end of the sixth chapter, it says something uh, which, which I really love. And it, what it talks about is uh, uh, we, we become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. And these people, who, and my heart goes out to them, who, who are afraid, if I join Alcoholics Anonymous and become a mindless AA automaton, uh, why, I'm not going to have my own life. And I won't be, 
And everything in the big book, every single thing in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, as far as I understand it, says completely the opposite. That the entire point of this book is to deliver to you your life. Is to, so you can stop wasting time. So you can start one day, to, whoever lived one day at a time, that means you've got to be in your life. I was always going to start my life when a bunch of shit happened. You know, when she showed up or the money fell or the hammer dropped or, you know, I was almost always almost having a life. And what we say to you is you better start having it today. And it better just go till 12 o'clock tonight. Not that you can't make plans, you just don't get to live in them. You know, so uh, that's just something I, I need to know uh, because... You know, I heard a lot of stuff when I came into AA that I wanted, and I heard a lot of stuff I didn't want. And uh, I heard people talking about their brain in the third person, as if it was some unwanted alien uh, dashing about their house, planning their death. And I said, geez, I feel that way right now. Uh, do you have anything else? And of course, uh, nowhere in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous does it say, your head's out to get you. It, doesn't, it says your head's out to get you, but it says if you do this work, that won't be true anymore. You can, if you're in self, you're in self, and you got to do the work to get out of self. But if you do the work in the book, you can live a free man with your God, and you don't have to live in this constant fear. I'll tell you, man, quite often, if I'm not in self, my first thought is the right thought. This whole notion that I have to completely reject the first thought because it is guaranteed self, that's not true for me anymore. It really isn't. It used to be, but it ain't true anymore. You know? Um... Let's uh, move on to uh, um, step three. If we could take step, if you uh, know the third step prayer, if you have your book, if you want to just join me and we'll make a decision together and take the third step and discuss it uh, this morning. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do the good. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Take away my difficulties, the victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. It doesn't say take away my difficulties so I can run off with an all-female jazz band. It says take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. And the minute for me that the removal of my di difficulties becomes about anything else besides helping another man, I'm screwed. I'm screwed, and eventually it won't work. Spiritual tools, not spiritual weapons. And man, it is, and we've all seen it. We've all seen in Alcoholics Anonymous and outside of Alcoholics Anonymous, spiritual tools used as spiritual weapons, and it's pretty ugly. It's like when I first started talking in AA, and a newcomer woman came up to me afterwards and looked at me in the eyes, and she was kind of fluttering and telling me how spiritual I was, and I was agreeing with her, you know. And, and, uh, and I looked in this woman's eyes, and I said to myself, Oh, no, she thinks I'm a nice guy. <laughs> oh, my God. And I realized that what this woman saw in my eyes was the power of God, and I could misuse the gift if I wanted. <laughs> but uh, it, was an, it, it was an astounding thing for me to see that demonstrated in another person. Uh, it says in the description of step three that uh, it says something very, very powerful for me. Uh, and it says uh, of step three in that, that uh, I'm going to have one major requirement right away. And uh, what it says to me is, uh, uh, I had to quit playing God. 
Now, this is just me, and this is just my approach to the program. If I am going to quit playing God, says if I expect to take step three, I've got to quit playing God. How can I quit playing God if I'm bossing a bunch of people around, if I'm bossing sponsees around, if I'm telling men when to work the steps, if I'm telling them how to treat their families, if I'm saying, you better do this, you can't do this. How, and, and I know the guys do it in the program, and, and that's fine for them. I, for me, if I'm doing that, I'm, I, I've tried it. And I'm very bad at it. The first thing I had to do was quit playing God. Now, step three for me was a, a real big deal. When my sponsor said, are you ready to make a decision? And I said yes. And he said, well, get on your knees with me and pray. And I went, oh, man, oh, man. I mean, I figured the guy's hitting on me or, you know, something. I mean, I really did. That was the first thing that went through my head, you know, is he's, you know, wants something here. And, uh, and I was terrified. And I got on my knees and I... And I prayed with him. And even though the spiritual experience is promised to us in step 12, there are spiritual hits throughout the entire book. It says right here, we thought well before taking this step, uh, uh, and, and we found that a, a great effect, sometimes, uh, if humbly and honestly made, sometimes a, a very great effect was felt at once. At the end of the fourth step, it says, we've made a good beginning. That's, I don't know why everybody's terrified of the fourth step, and it says at the end of it, all it says is you've made a good beginning. Then in step five, it says now you actually begin to have a spiritual experience. Then in the middle of the ninth step, they have this incredible list of promises that you're going to know serenity, you're going to know peace of mind, you're going to have uh, fear of uh, financial insecurity is going to be removed. Step 10, it says, sanity will have been restored and the alcohol problem will be removed. Step 11 says, the occasional hunter inspiration will become a working part of the mind, which is good news for pot smokers because that means, wow, stays. <laughs> it stays, guys. <laughs> And then finally in step 12 it says we will have had a spiritual experience and our lives will be saved. So I mean throughout the whole book you get these little spiritual hits. It's like that stuff with my kid. That memory about my kid crushed me enough to help me stay around here a few more days. I had a lot of spiritual experiences when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And um, uh, it says here on the next page on 63 and the top of 64 that the third step will have little permanent or lasting effect unless immediately followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things that have been blocking us. So it says step three will have little permanent or lasting effect unless followed by a fourth step. This is not my opinion. It's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, when I was six months sober, I had thought I had worked the first three steps. I admitted I was an alcoholic. That's a fatal illness. My life is unmanageable. And I come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And I had taken a third step. Now, third step's not going to be part of my life because I haven't done a fourth. So it's going to kind of come and go. So what have I actually really done? I've admitted I'm dying. My life sucks and I'm out of my mind. How come I don't feel any better? <laughs> Why should I have felt any better? There's no reason. I admitted I was dying. My life was a mess. And I was insane. You don't need to be restored to sanity unless you're insane. <clears throat> um... As far as I know, there's only two places in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that tell us when to do a fourth step. Three places, actually. It says, uh, if you expect a third step to have any lasting effect, do it immediately afterwards. That's the section we just took a look at. In Bill's story, he talks about doing his fourth step uh, when he was a couple of weeks sober in the hospital. Boy, am I glad he wasn't working a step a year. I don't know if that uh, little gem ever got, got this far north, but we used to hear it in meetings in L.A., work a step a year. Yeah. Um, 
Step four, I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. I have not had a drink since. Bill did it in the hospital, in town hospital, with Abby when he came to visit him. That's the second place I know of. And then there's another uh, interesting um, uh, reference to it uh, in in working with others. Um, It says here, Sometimes a new man is anxious to proceed at once. You may be tempted to let him do so. This is sometimes a mistake. If he has trouble later, he is likely to say you rushed him. Then on the next page it says, Suppose you are now making your second visit to him. Go right ahead. (laughs) You can leave the pencil home on the first visit. Now, different guys do it uh, the, the four-step at different times. I just like that because sometimes we hear guys tell us when to do a four-step. And I'm always going, what? Did you have an appendix that I didn't read? I mean, what, you know, uh, that you shouldn't start it till you're X amount. And again, this is different strokes for different folks. But I like to know that in my big book it says, just don't start the guy out on the first visit because he might get annoyed with you later on if he drinks. And uh, my sponsor did his four, started his four-step when he was 14 months sober. I started mine when I was six months sober. One of the men I respect most in Alcoholics Anonymous didn't do a fourth step until he was seven years sober. He was a barrel of fun until then. But, uh, <laughs> but he didn't drink. He didn't drink. Sometimes a dubious achievement, but he did not drink. And um, so you're going to start it when you start it. My, uh, my hope for you is that you do start it. I will tell you, and this is again, this is just for me. Until I did an inventory in Alcoholics Anonymous, I wasn't even on the playing field. For me, I wasn't even in, enjoined in this process. Dr. Silkworth refers to it as moral psychology. He says we always suspected some moral psychology, and we were having such a good talk this morning, Ken and I and a bunch of other guys, and we were talking about Carl Jung and some other stuff. And this whole sense of moral psychology, that there's a bigger consciousness, that there's a bigger reality. Nowhere in the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, nowhere does it say the road gets narrower. And I understand what guys are saying when they say the road gets narrower. They're saying, I can't do all the bad shit I used to do. Uh, imagine my shock, you know. But the fact is, is, is nowhere in the book does it say that life is going to get smaller. It doesn't, it's, all it talks about is life getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Never exclusive, always inclusive. And I want to tell you, man, after I did an inventory, and I started making amends, and there were very few places I couldn't go, and very few people I couldn't talk to, my life was bigger. I used to have this disgusting, tiny, little Scott Redmond life. And I want to tell you, there are a couple of uh, remarkable moments for me in my sobriety, which in retrospect I know was the clear evidence of God uh, appearing in my life. One was the day that I called my sponsor to talk about another man instead of me. I called him to talk about one of the men I was sponsoring. That was a big deal. And, and the second moment was when I realized for the first time that I was actually taking pleasure in the good fortune of other people. That's astounding, you know. Uh, because if anything happened uh, good to you in the old days, I'd go, oh, great! <laughs> I got a job. Oh, good, fabulous! <laughs> My kid, when he was about five, we were trying to find a place to eat in San Diego. And he was about five at the time, and Nancy said, oh, there's a Belgian restaurant. And Jesse went, I hate Belgian food. (laughs) And that reminded me of myself. Oh, you know, i got to make it crap because it's not going my way. You know, somehow it's got to be shit. I'll make it shit because it's not going my way. And when I 
realized that I was actually really thrilled at the good fortune of other people, I realized that my tiny, pathetic Scott Redmond life was being multiplied, multiplied, and multiplied. And that's, a, that's a pretty remarkable thing. Um, and how could I possibly have done that until I had examined, and we were talking briefly uh, uh, with another guy this morning about self-pity. And I want to tell you, man, if you could bottle self-pity, it would not crack off the market like that. It's a better drug. It's more powerful. If you could bottle self-pity, because when I get filled with self-pity, man, my eyes tear up, you know, my shoulders swamp forward, you know, I get a little tired, I get a little lump in my throat. It's like an opiate, man. I mean, it physically affects me that heavily, you know. And when I started examining my jealousy, my self-pity, my low self-esteem, my self-loathing, through taking a look at these resentments, these fears, and, and these uh, sexual problems, and I started getting free of that stuff, I really, the, the coast was clear for me to start enjoying the good fortune of, uh, of other people. Um, now it also says, and, and I, I, I think, you know, again, I just think they're so sweet to us in this book. They're not as sweet, by the way, in the chapters that are not written to us. <laughs> the chapters to the wife, to the employer, and to the family afterward, they're not quite as nice. They say, get them out, fire them, you know. They, they, they're not as uh, gentle as, they could, but those chapters are not written to us. They're written to those other people, you know. And here it says, um, in, in how it works, it says... Uh, Next, we launched out on a vigorous course of action, the next step of which is a house, personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. <laughs> now, I have never given instructions in a fourth step and had the guy go, you do that too? <laughs> wow, I've been doing this shit for years. I can't believe that this is what you guys do. <laughs> <clears throat> So uh, we're, uh, we've, we've started a discussion of the fourth step. I want to talk about the fourth step now, and then at 10 o'clock we'll open the floor to questions and stuff. Um, I talked about when to do a fourth step, and uh, the spiritual hits on the way, and now I would like to talk about the fourth step uh, specifically. Uh, I, uh, the way I was taught to do a fourth step was in three sections. The first resentment being... Uh, being a two-parter, being resentments and the defects of character that feed the resentments. <clears throat> I'm resentful at my father <clears throat> for not playing with me enough when I was a kid. I, to the best of my knowledge, have never heard a fifth step that did not have that resentment on it. I don't believe that I have ever heard a fifth step that did not have a resentment against the guy's dad for not just being attentive enough or teaching him about his body, teaching him how to bathe, uh, uh, something about that kind of caring and intimacy. Now, as a result, I've taken very great pains to be as attentive to my children as I possibly can. How many? It was on my fifth step. How many fifth steps do I have to read before I go? No, I'm talking to a drunk boy, so I can't deal with you now. I got to. Sometimes I got to say I got to call you back, and I got to go and do it. My kids, it's to the point where it's a joke. Like if they had a question about sexuality, I have these books I open and start drawing pictures, and they go. Oh, not the pictures again. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I went a little over in the other direction. That's okay. I'd rather err on the, on the side of being right than the side of being uh, shut down with it. And um, I'm, uh, I'm resentful at my father for dying. That was a very tough thing for me to admit and to put on my fourth step. And I've heard it on many fifth steps since. Resentment against a parent for dying. And who, I mean, what an ego blow to me that I would be that low 
But the fact was, I was. I was resentful of my father for dying. It affected my self-esteem, pocketbook, mm-hmm. ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects that feed a resentment like that? Well, I'm clearly playing God. I'm deciding when people should die and shouldn't die. I'm greedy. I had my father till I was 21. I have met many men since that did not have that kind of time with their dad. Didn't have him for 21 years. So some of me has got to be greedy for saying 21's good, but 22 would have been better. Right. I'm ungrateful. <clears throat> I'm filled with self-pity over this. Now, none of this is geared to beat up Scott Redmond. None of it is. This is not about saying, okay, God, I'm a complete piece of shit. I'm riddled with this stuff. Can you take pity on this poor piece of crap and make me better? What I'm saying is that all of these things are natural things to feel. Bill Wilson talked about it beautifully, and he talks about it very beautifully in the 12 and 12. He talks about natural drives that once they become established in an alcoholic, become unnatural drives. That we take drives for sex, for property, for prestige, for ego, and because of the alcoholism, because they're connected to this soul sickness, they become totally unnatural and they become life-ending instead of life-perpetuating. I was resentful uh, at myself for being a failure. I was resentful uh, at... uh, Well, it's an interesting thing. Uh, We're asked to write about resentments against people, institutions, and principles. Okay. So I know the people that I'm resentful at. I know that I'm also resentful at myself. And it says in our book, it says, sometimes it was remorse, and then we were sore at ourselves. I know you guys had no resentments against yourself. Uh, I I certainly had a few. And... um, Institutions. The institutions I had to write about, I was uh, angry at the IRS because I owed them $42,000. That pissed me off pretty good. And uh, I was resentful at the government of South Africa. I was resentful at the government of Israel. I was resentful at Nazi Germany. It's hard living your life when you're taking care of all this stuff, you know. It really is. When you're, when you're involved on the global level I was involved on, it's very, very hard to mind your own business. Um, and uh, in addition to these institutions, and I was resentful at certain banks, I was resentful at certain religious institutions, and in addition to that, people institutions and principles. Well, what's a principle I can be resentful at? Well, if I don't think that uh, uh, people of color are equal, then I can think the principle of, uh, of equality is. I'm resentful at that. If I'm resentful at racism, I could be resentful at that. You could be resentful at any principle. I could be resentful because at people who think that gay people should be treated equally. I can be resentful at the principle of people of gay people being bashed. I could be resentful at either one. I've got to get it on my inventory. Fancied or real, they have the power to actually kill. That's what our book says. And I want to tell you, if I had only had real stuff on my inventory, it would have been a rather short document. Fancied or real, imaginary or real, they have the power to actually kill. And then it says, and it's an astounding thing. My favorite line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that we write a list of those people who had, were, you know, people, places, and things that had harmed us. Went back to our lives, nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. I'm looking at the list now. And this used to be my favorite sentence in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, when I look at this list, the first thing that is apparent was that the world and its people were often quite wrong. Close that book. (laughs) Close that sucker. That's enough for today, babe. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? Is that a beautiful sentence? (laughs) You got to go further. (laughs) If you don't go further, you die. But I love that sentence. And then 
on that whole page it talks about they're wrong it doesn't they don't get into it with us they're wrong you're right the first thing that was apparent was that the world and its people were often quite wrong and we're going to die they're wrong we're going to die we experience a resentment we resense things when our head hits the pillow and it becomes a rotisserie we resense things and guys sometimes say to me well you know I don't feel the resentment right now why should I write it and I say hedge your bet pal Hedge your bet because the time and place could come up, even if you're not feeling this stuff now, where a situation could reignite this thing and it could jump up and bite you on your ass in a New York second. Hedge your bet. Put it through the God computer. Get clean with it and see what happens. Why not? You know, I tell you, man, if you had cancer and I gave you a series of things to do to not have cancer, I don't think you'd go, I like the first one. Third one's a little annoying. And the fourth one, I think that you go, yeah, let me have that stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll do that stuff. Um, then on the bottom of the page, it says you're in a real fix. Because it says you are going to die. You're going to be cut off from the sunlight of the spirit. The resentment is the great destroyer of all alcohol. It's the source of all spiritual illness. And then in the end, it says we cannot will these things away any more than alcohol. Now, that's a tough one. Because for me, and this is just for me, because some people, when they resent people, they pray for them. And I can't. It doesn't work for me. And I know it works for them, and I know it doesn't work for me. Because my prayer usually winds up, uh, Father, uh, help this man. Kill this man. <laughs> kill this miserable son of a bitch. Kill him. He needs killing. Uh, it'll be better for him. It'll be better for all of us. <laughs> My sponsor used to say to me, well, just stop the prayer in the middle. <laughs> and again, it works for some people, it doesn't work for me. What I've had to do is I've had to sit down and say, I'm resentful. There's a guy who's dead now, his name is Mark Gass. And this guy kicked my ass every day when I was a kid. He just kicked my ass every day. In the Bronx. And... uh 25 years later, when I told you I didn't get this job uh, directing the sitcom and I almost drank, subsequently when I was cooking, one of the stars of the sitcom found himself in Alcoholics Anonymous and found himself around me, and it was pretty amazing. I was able to help this guy. and He came over to get instructions in the fourth step, and I was there. I was with God. I'm a man of God. Now I'm fine, you know. And uh, he was a little late, and he, uh, he said, yeah, the, our, our, one of our new directors, the guy who's got my job, no big deal, 11 grand a week. Right. Can I get off more than one round before I go down, right? One of our new directors is teaching an acting class. He asked me to come and do a guest shot, so I went over there. And I said, oh, really, who's that? And he said, Mark Gass. <laughs> He's got my job. I mean, the guy kicked my ass every day, and now 3,000 miles away, he's eating my lunch. And man, I, I laughed. I called my sponsor. I laughed because Mark Gass had been on my inventory. And I was clear. I was clean with it. And I got, I got to, I, it was just beyond funny. I mean, it was, it was stupid funny, you know, by that time. And of course, Don got a big kick out of it. And as long as he's having a good time, you know. Um, I had to put it through the God computer. And, uh, in addition to uh, writing my uh, resentments against uh, people, institutions, and principles, I was asked to write a fear list. Now, uh, it's a very interesting thing, really interesting thing, the section on fear on the bottom of page 87 and, and all of, uh, I'm sorry, 67 and 68. 
uh, it says, uh, we wrote a list of fears not in connection with personal resentment, which is a really interesting thing to me. Because if I'm frightened of the police, but I'm also resentful at myself for being a bank robber, <laughs> then, I've, then I have got some personal resentment in connection with that fear. So I've got to go, I can't just write the fear of police and not write the resentment against myself of being a bank robber or the resentment against the teller for pushing the alarm or all the other attendant or my wife for nagging me until I robbed a bank and, you know, all of that, all of that stuff. I had this great moment with Nancy when we were living in New York. She just was on my back, on my back about something. And I, I finally turned to her and I said, give me a figure. She said, what? I said, just what is it going to cost to shut you up? Just give me a figure. She said, 10 grand. <laughs> and I went out and I borrowed $10,000. <laughs> I borrowed that money. I threw it on the table. And I said, shut up. <laughs> Which lasted, you know, a minute and a half. Uh, <laughs> took me, it took me 10 years to pay that money back. God damn it. Because of you guys, of course. I never would have paid it back, you know. Um, so this is a kind of a tricky and an interesting thing I can't write I'm frightened of cops I have to write I'm resentful at Scott for being a bank robber one of the defects of character that feeds the resentment is fear but for the fearless just for the fearless I can't write that I'm resentful uh, I'm frightened of being alone I'm frightened of being with other people I'm frightened of being a failure I'm frightened of being a success uh, I don't think there's a fear list I've heard in the last eight years that has not had a fear of AIDS on it. I think every fear list I've heard in, in at least the last eight or nine years has had a fear of AIDS. And I will tell you, I do not believe that I have ever heard a fear list that did not contain those four fears. Fear of being alone, fear of being with other people, fear of success, fear of failure. And I need to hear it because I'm scared of those things too. And they come up for me. And I've got to know that I'm not alone. Deflation, surrender, identification. It's what has kept my life because when I admitted I was different and then I could be with you guys who are different and then admit that I was the same as the different people. And through this inventory process, this, this has been, again, the hub for me. Now it says on page 62, which is to me the paragraph that is uh, the remarkable and not very attractive description of the psychological mindset of the alcoholic. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred fears of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. Driven is not nudged or influenced. <laughs> driven implies under the lash of in slavery to. It owns you. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. Now, is that 25 of each or a hundred of each? I don't know. But it's a lot. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation. But we invariably, invariably means without variation, without any loophole, without exception, invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self which later placed us in a position to be hurt. I am resentful at my aunt for holding my arms to my side so that my cousin could hit me. Is the resentment my fault? Yes. Is the action my fault? The event? No. What a horrible thing to do to a child. Was that my fault? No. There's no excuse for physically restraining a child so they can be hit. There's no excuse for it. Is the event my fault? No. Is the resentment my fault? Yes. A normal person perhaps could just not like the woman, stay away from her, have an unpleasant memory, but I did anything I could do for 20 years to make her miserable. 
That's a resentment. Is the resentment my fault? Yes, because if it's not my fault, I can't get rid of it. Is the action my fault? No. Is the resentment my fault? Yes. If I can't own it, I can't dispose of it. But I've also got to know that the action was not my fault. I'm resentful at my father for not playing with me. Was that my fault? No. I was kind of an okay kid to be played with. It wasn't my fault that my father was living the life he was living. Is the resentment my fault? Yes. That was an extraordinarily uh, important. And when guys, when I'm giving instructions and a guy say, well, I'm not going to write about that person. Look what they did to me. I go, you're right. And you're dying. You're right. They're horrible. And you're dying. Now, what are we going to do? In our uh, next section, I want to... Next, next session, I want to uh, continue the discussion of fears and uh, get into the sexual inventory. But it's 10 o'clock now, and I'd like to open the floor to questions and answers. If you got an answer or a question, yeah. I was looking for the third set. It's on page 63. You're welcome. Questions or answers? Okay. If one is uh, unconvinced in sincerity or, or you know, soundness of one's third step, is there any point in trying to fumble through any further steps and seeing what happens, or is it just uh, a dead end? Well, I can only that just like step two, which was an admission of possibility, in step three I made a decision to move forward. But I felt no white light. I felt no presence of God. I did not. All I felt was that I was part of Alcoholics Anonymous and involved with the steps. But had I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood Him, I will tell you one thing, and I didn't admit it at the time, but it was the big miracle, the big demonstration that makes all other miracles and all other demonstrations possible was I wasn't drinking. And for me to not drink was so extraordinary, to not drink on purpose, that obviously I had let some other power into my life. I believe what the book says, this is just for me, that the third step had little permanent or lasting effect unless followed by, immediately followed by a strenuous effort. So you ask, uh, what's the point if it's fumbling or it, it doesn't feel real? To me, the book tells me that's exactly the way, what it's going to be that it will have little permanent or lasting effect. What has little permanent or lasting effect? Well, you could paint your car with a watercolor, and that's going to have little permanent or lasting effect, especially up here. Uh, uh, it's only going to last one afternoon. Uh, uh, if you put a primer on it and, and a couple of coats, you know, then you're going to get a permanent or lasting effect. And when guys say to me, I'm working the third step, I don't think I can move forward, that's fine for them, but for me, I, I would have I died. I would have died. Uh, I don't know if that's helpful at all, but I, I, for me, until I did the inventory, I didn't even know what I was turning over to God. It was a real general statement until I said, oh, I'm turning these resentments, these defects of character, these fears, and these sexual problems. And it says we have to move over. God is our director. We are, the, you know, we are his agents. He is the father. We are his children. Some sense of just moving over. And for me... Probably the biggest demonstration, the two biggest demonstrations of the fact that I was working step three when I was new was one, I wasn't drinking. That was the biggest demonstration. And for me, the second demonstration was I allowed myself to be sponsored. That's a big deal, man. Because you guys know you can have a good designer sponsor. You can have anybody you want sponsoring you. Doesn't mean shit. 
unless you allow yourself to be sponsored. Now, part of the trick is not to ask an idiot to be your sponsor. So he says, well, write the 12 and 12 in longhand on the center divider of I-5. <laughs> you know, uh, don't, don't go with that guy, you know. Uh, try to find a guy who seems reasonably involved in this thing. But I allowed a guy to, and, and for me the good fortune was I allowed a guy to sponsor me who was very loving and really gentle with me and really uh, friendly to my family and... Uh, my children call him uncle. My real brother will not talk to me. My, my brother has not talked to me since I got sober uh, and will have nothing to do with my wife and children. And my kids uh, have this incredible uncle. You know, Some years ago, we walked, uh, walked over to my sponsor's house, me and my older son, and, and uh, Don said uh, to Micah, were you playing video games today? And Micah said, no, the obsession's been removed and I didn't have to read anything. <laughs> They just adore each other, you know. And uh, there's this real gentle kind of loving sort of thing that goes on. And one thing, and, and again, this is a, a result of, of the rest of the work affecting, impacting my third step. I have a gift that God has given me. He has given me two remarkable gifts. One is, He has given me the gift of a sober, loving brother. And He has given me the gift of a sober, loving son. My father's dead. My brother won't talk to me. Now, if I have really made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, and then he gives me these gifts. Who am I to say to him, if I don't get to give the gift of a sober loving son to my father, I won't give it to anybody. Who the hell do I think I am to tell God what I'm going to do with these remarkable gifts he's given me? I've been, if I can't give the gift of a sober loving brother to my brother, I won't give it to anybody. Sometimes I can't give the gift of a sober, loving husband to my wife. And I have to give it to somebody. No, no. Uh, no, 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 no. But I, I will give the gift of a sober, loving brother to the men I sponsor, to the men I come into contact with. I will give that gift away because I have made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Uh, the first thing I have to do is quit playing God. But for me, again, the third step, it's a real catch-22. I can't work the rest of the steps until I take the third step, and I can't work the third step without taking the rest of the steps. I guess that's what I'm trying to say in a very long-winded way. Any other questions? Any answers? Yeah? The question, I don't want to put a spin on this, but some of us come in to AA off the street, some of us come to the channel in and, and many of the treatment centers are very too, but when I was in, you had to do a fourth step while you were in there. Not, not a real bit often, it turns out. But uh, part of that, what they encourage you to do is to include some of the things you think about yourself that work, that mm -hmm. are present, that, that don't work, or that you got in your own work. Maybe they know that we have to poor self esteem. Absolutely. I think it's great that the guys who are doing that need to do that. I, I, it's something I didn't need to do, and I, I'd like to go into why. And again, uh, as, I, as I started out my talk and saying, anything anybody's doing that's getting them closer to God, man, is a great thing. Bill Wilson talks about in the description of the fourth step, I believe it's in the description of the fourth step, in the 12 and 12, he talks about making a character asset list. It is not mentioned in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I found it very un, uh, uh, something that was important for me to not do. And I'll tell you why. I had been working on a character asset list for 33 years, and I didn't believe a fucking word of it. And if you thought I was great, I thought you were either an idiot or misinformed, except on the days where you po 
couldn't possibly have thought I was great enough. I will tell you that I have had unsuccessful experiences working with certain men in Alcoholics Anonymous who needed to do that work, and I couldn't do it with them. It says in our book, we cannot be helpful to all people, but we must at least take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. I know some guys need to do it. I'm just not in a, in a situation where I'm able to do it. I, what I do in terms of character assets is I do that one-on-one with a guy in terms of loving him, like the way my sponsor did to me. That's where my character asset list came from, which was from this kindness and this love and this personal one-on-one attention that this guy gave me. And I guess that's really how I pass that on. But I don't codify it. I don't do it in a, in a written list. To take it a little further... Many people put themselves on the top of their eight step list. It was very clear, and, it's, and they need to. I needed to not be on my eight step list. I need, and if I was on it, I needed to be way down on it. Because I had only taken care of me. I, had, I didn't need to make amends to Scott Redman. I had been making amends to Scott Redman at your expense for 33 years. And I know some people, part of their sickness is they obliterated themselves for the good of other people. I obliterated you for my good. Again, I'm not a suicide person. I'm a homicide person. Uh, I, uh, if I couldn't read, I'd set your head on fire, you know, so I could see the book. So um, uh, uh, I hear you, and I know that it's a very important thing that a lot of guys have had to do. And that's a very interesting thing. I mean, it's something I've never even thought of before because sometimes in a treatment situation, you don't get a personal, the kind of intensive personal one-on-one thing we can get from sponsorship. That's why we have sponsorship and we have recovery situations. And... That is really where I got it. I, really, I knew that this guy loved me. I knew that he believed that I was a good guy despite all of the proof I had to the contrary. And I guess that's really the way uh, I'm able to do that. You know, uh, we have a great tradition in my AA family uh, because, you know, we're, uh, we've, we've destroyed a lot of families and we've destroyed a lot of traditions and we haven't been in the mainstream of life. And one thing in my AA family which we love to do is we have baby showers. And we have bridal showers. And we have birthday parties. And we love it, man. We love it. We do any, we're good drunks. Anything for a party. You know? Get that crepe paper out, man. You know, we just, uh, we love to do it. And I guess that's, that's where the character asset list. But I guess what I'm saying again in a long-winded way is I think we need it. I think it's right. And I guess we do it in different ways.